0: Well it's great to be preaching once again and after a week's break we head to Mark chapter 13 and the Olivet Discourse. So go ahead, grab those Bibles, get them open up at Mark chapter 13 and we'll work through our passage together today. Two weeks ago Ian Kirkby from TCM took us through the first 13 verses of the Olivet Discourse. Now it's named as such because Jesus was teaching his disciples while on the Mount of Olives. Now, the Mount of Olives sat outside of Jerusalem, about one or two miles outside of the city wall and across from the Kidron Valley. You could view the whole of Jerusalem from this mount. Now, chapter 13 in entirety is the Olivet Discourse, but we can also read it in Matthew 25 and Luke 21. And in your own time, you can go ahead and look at those chapters. But it's not only the content that makes this particular passage special. But the fact that it was the closing out of the public ministry of Jesus for the coming chapters in Mark's gospel switch to the passion narrative, that moment and time where Jesus heads to the cross for the sake of sinners like you and I. So this is the final moment of Jesus teaching his disciples in public ministry. Ian took us through the first 13 verses of the discourse and what we learned is three things. Firstly, the temple, that central point for all Jews, would be destroyed in the future. The second thing we learned, there will be false teachers and false doctrines that will arise and spread across the nations. Thirdly, there will be a major persecution for disciples and believers in Christ. So with those things in mind, in the first 13 verses of chapter, 13. We're going to be picking up from verse 14 onwards to the end of the chapter. But what I want you to see as we go through this passage is that there will be an end to all things. There will be, as a matter of certainty, a time of destruction. Yet what we're going to learn is that Jesus is the victorious king throughout establishing his eternal kingdom, which really poses the question today that I want to consider. What side will you be on? The side of destruction or the side of victory? Of hope or despair? Ultimately, the question I'm asking us today is, are we ready for the end? Now we're going to be working through our passage together and then we'll draw some conclusions uh, towards the end to apply to our lives. Bear with me in the detail, it is a detailed passage, but it establishes our rock-solid foundation to apply the word of God to our lives. So we've got to do the work before we can get the application. So we're going to go to Mark chapter 13 and from verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now I want you to picture the scene here. Jesus is on the Mount of Olives with his disciples. Jerusalem is in the background and so when Jesus talks about this great city and what will come to pass, it would have been vivid and real for the disciples. This was not just a passing conversation, just passing the time together. This was a serious matter of great consequence and the disciples and Jesus would have seen the city that they were talking about. It seems that everything Jesus is talking about here centres around the abomination of desolation. Now we first pick up this phrasing in the book of Daniel in his great visions from chapter 7 onwards. We know that the visions were apocalyptic in nature meaning they were focused on the present age coming to an end in destruction and then a new age of peace coming in after that destruction. So we can rightly place the teaching of Jesus about the abomination of desolation as apocalyptic in nature. It's about a time of destruction. It's about a time of this old world dying and a new world coming to be. And what we're going to see throughout is there's a difference to just apocalyptic literature. There is hope in the middle of it, and that hope is Jesus. Now, the Hebrew word for abomination is shikots. Now, shikots translates as a filthy and disgusting idol. Now, it's interesting to note that abominations or filthy idols are mentioned nearly 30 times in the Old Testament, but rarely mentioned in the New Testament. When we take this into account, this word desolation being added to it, meaning to utterly destroy, William Barclay phrases it in a really helpful way for us to understand. He calls the abomination of desolation, a fairly rare um, title, rare phrasing to use as the idol that profanes, the filthy and disgusting idol that destroys or profanes. Now, Ian reminded us two weeks ago that we've seen this happen before in the temple. Antiochus Epiphanes set up an idol worship and sacrifices to pagan gods after Daniel's visions. So the abomination of desolation isn't a new thing, it is just simply a rare thing to discuss in scripture. Now Jesus is referring to the abomination of desolation in prophesying that it's going to happen again, but this time it will be like no other In verse 2, he tells the disciples the temple is going to be utterly destroyed. In verse 14, he tells us why this utter destruction will come, because a filthy and disgusting idol will stand in the temple where it does not belong and it will profane and blaspheme against God. In a moment, we're going to come on to why that is important for our future. But for now, I want us to see this really quite interesting phrase, let the reader understand. Why does not Mark not spell out what is being said here? Why is there a sense of secrecy and mystery? Is this some form of veiled vision yet to be fully realised? Or is Mark protecting someone or something? There's no easy answers to these questions, but this phrasing limits to us the full picture that is happening there's clearly something behind the scenes that is occurring that we as the reader don't yet understand. What we are told though is that when this abomination of desolation occurs, this filthy idol that brings utter destruction, all those in Christ are to flee. They're to run for the hills. They're to take themselves to safety and we get this sense of urgency in this passage and the call to run when we read from verse 15 onwards. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for the women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. You get a real sense of drop everything and run. There'll be a a moment in the future where the people of God, having been warned, will know that they are to leave their homes and their personal items behind and run for the hills. There's a sense of danger here, isn't there? Hope that you're not pregnant in this time. Hope that you don't have young children in this time. Even hope that it's not winter and cold in this time. This is a life-threatening moment. Now, the major question that scholars have tried to answer Is whether verse 14 through 18 refer to the great fall of Jerusalem in AD 70 that Ian Kirkby mentioned to us two weeks ago. Because you see, Emperor of Rome in AD 70, Emperor Titus, lay siege to the city of Jerusalem. The Roman army blocked all entrances and exits to the city and stopped all resources going in. Over a period of time, the people of Jerusalem began to starve. So horrific was their starvation that the history books record mountains of dead bodies and a city in utter chaos. It's recorded that over one million people died in Jerusalem under this siege, with the main cause being starvation. Jerusalem fell into the hands of the Roman Empire, who swiftly destroyed the core of the city, the temple. It's also recorded that many fled out of the city, into the country, into the mountains, into the hills, mainly Christians who fled to safety in Pella and the Transjordan. So you see, on the surface, verse 14 through 18 speak of a destruction that to some extent we have seen in AD 70. But there's two really important things to note. First, there is no mention of a filthy and disgusting idol, the abomination, Where is this filthy and disgusting idol? Secondly, remember there's a hint from Mark that we don't know or we won't know the whole picture. So the question remains, is this AD 70 or is this some other time in the future? Well, that question gets even more complicated when we head to verse 19. For in those days there'll be such a tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. I want you to note, for in those days. So Jesus is still talking about the abomination of desolation. He's still in this time period. There's going to be a great tribulation, a great trial. And note this, it will be one like you have never seen before since the creation of mankind. This is going to be ultimately the greatest, most significant, never again trial and devastation to all of mankind. Why is this important to point out? Well, since AD 70, we have seen hundreds of wars, plagues, diseases, persecutions. In just the last hundred years, we have seen World War I, World War II, we've seen a war on terror, and we even right now have a worldwide pandemic killing millions. And there's two things really coming out of this. Clearly, we have seen a lot worse since AD 70. So AD 70 wasn't the worst tribulation or trial that mankind has ever seen. But most shockingly, what this verse is hinting to is there is going to be a final trial, a final devastation that is even worse than all of the things I've mentioned put together. This is going to be the worst trial, tribulation, devastation, destruction that mankind has ever and will ever see. So you see, yes, some of what Jesus was saying is fulfilled in AD 70, certainly the destruction of the temple but clearly not all was fulfilled at that point, meaning it would be good for us to have a futuristic viewpoint. In saying that, what I mean is we take these verses, we recognize they apply to the time of Christ, but we also recognize they apply in the future. We have a futuristic view. We look to the future in these verses and recognize there is an application to us and the future generations. Now, if you've stuck with me so far, Well done, and I'm pretty sure you're asking. Great sermon for us to come back to. Utter devastation and destruction. And you'd be right. So far, there has been utter devastation and destruction. But remember what I said at the beginning. There will be hope in the form of Jesus in this time. Verse 20. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. This final trial, this final devastation would wipe out every person, there would be no survivors apart from the Lord stopping the trial short. He shortens it, so that the destruction doesn't head to the elect. He saves his people. Now, I don't have time today to go into this word elect and how that comes about. So for the sake of this sermon, let us just recognize that this is believers in Christ, or in other words, the family of God, those who have placed their faith in Jesus. The Lord will stop the destruction and devastation short to ensure the safety of his faithful servants. Verse 21, and then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, he, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. Again, I want you to see the words and then at the beginning of this passage. It links to the previous topics of the abomination of desolation and this great trial. These verses could refer to AD 70 and the destruction of Jerusalem, but taking that futuristic view, we can also see how they apply to times now and times in the future. There will come after Jesus and before the end of all time, false Christs and false teachers they will masquerade as Christ himself, they will label themselves key teachers of sound doctrine and truth. Yet what is their aim? What do they say in these verses is their clear goal? Their aim is to lead astray the elect, the people of God, to take them away from God and into their own agendas. Their aim is not to make much of Jesus, not to teach his commands, not to follow him faithfully, not to take the gospel to the very ends of the earth. Their aim is to pick off the children of God for their own purposes and their own power-hungry agendas. And how are they going to go and do this? They're going to use signs and wonders. Essentially, they're going to put on a show, on a display, and try and convince people that they have a spiritual gifting and a spiritual knowledge. Donald English, our commentator said it in the most profound way, they need to impress the people with signs and wonders because they have nothing else to offer. It was all display, it was all show, no depth. Time and time again, I come across people who have attended signs and wonders churches, churches noted for their incredible spiritual giftings and attractiveness. Many who leave these churches start to recognize there is no substance behind these signs and wonders. When trials come, there is no hope. When difficult passages are discussed, they're laughed off or worse, just removed from scripture and teaching. To question such a sign or wonder is to blaspheme against spiritual ones. I've also come across individuals who have stayed and consistently find it hard to grasp the Bible, to understand how the Old Testament links to the new, and to see how Christ truly transforms not just our outward person, but our inner, inner hearts. Why are all these things missing? Why are all these churches threatened by questions? Because they have absolutely nothing else to offer than signs and wonders. It's all show, it's to have a glimpse behind that curtain would just spoil the show and spoil the display. And do you want to know something today? Do you want to know what the greatest sign and wonder is? Do you want to know what the greatest depth to the show of Christ, the display of Christ is? I tell you this, it's not going to be found in prosperity gospel. It's not going to be found in Pentecostalism. It's not going to be found in a charismatic movement. It's found in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is your sign and wonder. The dead Christ, three days in the grave, rose from dead in victory, defeating both sin and death, sitting at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning for eternity. That is the true sign and wonder of the gospel. It is Jesus Christ himself. This is what Jesus is talking about. People, churches, teachers, pastors, spiritual people, attempting to lead people astray. And note I say attempting, for Jesus says here, be on guard. He is giving us a warning. Don't fall into the traps of these false teachers, this sign, this wonder, this display, this show. Let me put it very simply, Jesus himself is the gospel. Jesus himself is the warning against falsity and Jesus himself is the antidote to the signs and wonders movement. Because Jesus himself is the sign and wonder. Do you know anyone else resurrected from the dead, ruling and reigning at the right hand of God? Nothing else compares. It has been and always will be all about Jesus. Let's keep moving. Verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Again, see the linking words here, putting in all of this together. But in those days, we're still in the time of the abomination of desolation. We're still in this time period of coming to the end of all time. Jesus is still talking about the same subject, the same timing. And before we get to verse 26, where we find the hope of Jesus, there will be cosmic catastrophes. The sun will lose its power. The moon will be darkened. The stars will fall. The very cosmos will be shaken to the core. Everything that we know, everything we can see and wonder in the sky will begin to fall apart. Think of it as the last deep groan of creation before Christ returns Isaiah 13 verses 9 to 10 give us a fairly explicit description behold the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make a land of desolation and to destroy its sinners from it for the stars of the heaven and their constellation will not give their light the sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light so we have filthy idols we have tribulation, we have disaster like no other, we have false teachers, we have false doctrines, we have persecution, we have the entire cosmos splitting apart, complete and utter destruction. Yet wait for it, here is the hope, here is the resounding trumpet of victory, here is light in darkness, verse 26 and then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Just before everything is destroyed the Son of Man referring to Jesus will come in all power and in all glory and do you see the hope in this? the certainty that Jesus will return. When everything seems lost, here comes Jesus, all-powerful, with all authority, with all glory, with all splendor. He will come with the saints of heaven and he'll send out the angels to gather in all those who are faithful servants before Christ Jesus. You see, so far we've been thinking about this passage and looking at it as end times, looking at it as destruction, looking at it as desolation, looking at it with despair. And most people do come to this passage and think everything's gone. But it's not about the destruction. It is about Jesus. The focus is verse 26. is the hinging verse. He is returning. He will gather believers and he will rule and reign with authority for eternity. Now, most of you know, as a Scotsman, I'm inclined to go to the negative. I'm inclined to go to the despair and the discouragement. But I have to admit, verse 26 is truly marvellous. In the middle of utter despair, our King returns, our King reigns and our King saves. That's what this passage is about. Verse 28, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. If you've been following the teaching of Lincoln Baptist over the past few months, you will know that the fig tree represents Israel. And the most recent fig tree with reference in Mark's gospel is to a curse over Jerusalem and the temple. However, I want to make sure you don't fall into the trap that every mention of fig tree in the Bible must refer to Jerusalem and Israel or to that uh, curse that Jesus places upon the temple. In this case, it seems more like a parable, a sign to a particular season where we will look and we will know that we are in the end times. I want to be very clear, Jesus does not give a date for this was not about the calendar and marking off dates till that point. This was an encouragement. Look at at where the, the focus is of the verse. In that time, every believer will know the time They will see something, they'll they'll have something established in their mind and in their heart and in that moment they will know Jesus is coming. He's standing at the gates, he's readying himself to return. This is an encouragement in the time of devastation to look up and to recognise you will be saved if you're found in Christ. It's also a discouragement for all those who have chosen to reject Jesus. You will see this season... And you will know that you'll be committed to destruction and you will not go and be with Jesus in all glory. Again, this is not about the earth groaning, the creation falling apart. This is about Jesus returning so that he will reign and rule forever. Verse 30. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. We have yet another tricky verse in this passage. Jesus is talking to his disciples. So is the generation he is talking about referring to them or to another? I think it would be important at this stage to note the generation can also be translated as people or race or even Israel as a people group. You see, this is where the mystery lies. This is where we're not told the whole story, where we as believers realise we haven't had everything revealed to us yet. We don't know exactly who Jesus is referring to here, but what we do know is that there is a planned time that God has for all of these events in the Olivet Discourse. For a moment, though, I want you to see a striking phrase from Jesus. Everything, heaven and earth, will pass away. Everything as we know it will one day be gone, but the words of God, well, they will live on forever. What is the word of God? Well, it's the Bible that we hold in our hands. Who is the word of God? Well, the very saviour we worship, Jesus, the son of God. What authority he has. He will reign and his words will last forever as authority over all things. You see, this is why we have to guard the Bible with every breath in our body, for everything else will pass away. You name it in the Bible, and the world today is going to be against it. Gender, sexuality, marriage, Holiness, compassion, faith, all of it, the world is against. But here is the newsflash. You can argue till you are blue in the face. The Bible is going nowhere. The Bible is the living and active words of God and they will hold all honour and all glory above all of the world's opinions and above all the latest thinking forever. You can be a false teacher twisting the words to suit yourself. It's not gonna last. Every single thing, every single thought will be destroyed, but not the words of God. You see, the words of God are eternal and have all authority. It is truth. Let's continue with the final verses of the Olivet Discourse in verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts on his servants in charge, each with his work and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the cock crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And, I want, I want, and what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Only the Father, the Creator himself, knows when our Lord and Saviour will return. It seems odd, doesn't it, considering Jesus knows all things. But just as Jesus humbled himself to obedience in the Father, becoming man and dying on a cross, so he humbles himself and leaves the Father with the knowledge of when he will return. And here is the simple truth. We simply do not know when Christ will return. There's not a soul in this world that can predict it. And because of this, we are to be on guard. We need to be awake and alert. We need to be ambassadors for the gospel, living a holy life, sharing the good news of the gospel. Why? For it would be utter disaster if Jesus returned and we were asleep. We were found dishonoring Jesus. Just like the people in AD 70, the cry here is wake up, get about the Lord's business, live a holy life, share the gospel, expand his kingdom for he is coming soon. You see, this passage actually has little to do with destruction and everything to do with the return of King Jesus and his people being caught up for eternity. Now, if you stuck with me so far, really well done. Now let's look at applying this passage to our life. It is meaty, it's got lots in there, but there's some simple applications we can take for this week in our lives so that we can be daily transformed to become more like Christ in our lives. So the first thing I want to give you is this. What side are you on? Are you on the side of defeat or of victory? It's a simple question really. Are you on the side that has rejected Jesus and ultimately you're going to be completely destroyed in the end, spending eternity in hell? Or are you on the side of accepting Jesus, becoming a child of God, spending eternity with your creator? Watchman Nee said, outside of Christ I am only a sinner but in Christ I am saved, outside of Christ I am empty, in Christ I am full, outside of Christ I am weak, in Christ I am strong, outside of Christ I cannot, in Christ I am more than able, outside of Christ I have been defeated, in Christ I am already victorious, how meaningful are the words in Christ. friends? Are you in Christ? If not, I beg of you to reconsider Jesus as Lord and Saviour over your life. It is a certainty he is coming back. It is a certainty that everything will pass away, but Christ will reign and rule with his eternal word. Consider once again what side you are on. The second thing I want to share with you today is that it's God's word, not man's signs. God's word, not man's signs. I have to be really honest with you today. And and again, it's probably no different than normal, but it feels different having been away from preaching for a few weeks, but I wanna be honest. I'm really tired of opinions. I'm so tired of fancy talk and dynamic plans and flashy displays and great sounding, but weak thinking opinions. Let me be blunt. Man has absolutely nothing to offer, nothing except the good news of Jesus. I watch as countless young people get sucked into Pentecostalism. I watch as countless struggling individuals get trapped in the prosperity gospel. I watch as people twist and abuse God's word to suit the latest modern thinking on just about everything and I've got to be honest, I've had enough of it because man has nothing to offer, but the word of God and the gospel of Jesus. That's it folks, that's what it's all about. In the end, everything's gone. So why hold on to anything else, but the thing that will be eternal, which is Christ and his word. So I'm talking to you, the individual that twists the word of God, the individual that brings signs and wonders, but with no hope that follows. The individual who spouts endless spiritual nonsense in the hope of some following, You will come to an end. You will fail. You will be silenced. I say to all those who have been sucked in by such false teaching in our modern days, come to Jesus and his word. It's the only thing with everlasting authority and power. It's the only thing that will stand right to the end of time. It's the only thing that can make sense of everything be about God's word not man's pathetic fake signs there's nothing there there's no meaning there's no foundation there's no depth come to God's word the creator God himself wants a relationship with you remember he shortens destruction so he can save you he returns to bring his people to him Christ wants to save you so don't follow man's empty promises follow God's eternal love Third and finally, are you living as if you are ready? Are you living as if you are ready? To all believers listening and watching today, are you ready for Jesus? I mean, really, are you ready for the Lord to come back at this moment and see you right now? Have you surrendered entirely to him? Have you confessed your sins to him? Are you living a holy life? Far too many Christians are apathetically walking through this life thinking that their everyday sin is okay because, well, nobody knows or frankly I've got away with it for so long. Let me ask you this, would Jesus be truly joy-filled, joy-filled to come and collect you and bring you to the heavenly realms right now? Will he find a faithful servant? Will he find one that is ambassador for the gospel? Will he find one that shares the gospel to the very end of the age? Will he find somebody that has confessed the sin, repented from sin and lives a holy life? Will he find someone that is compassionate, loving and caring? Will he find someone that is generous? Will he find someone that places their hope and their joy in their Lord Jesus Christ? Will he find someone? Will he come and see someone? that fills him with joy. Folks, be expectant. Jesus is coming back, and I pray that we here at Lincoln Baptist will be ready for that day. And as one church, we will rejoice when our Lord returns, for we are ready. We have done the business of our Lord. We have served him. We have brought many to the kingdom. They have been saved by Christ's everlasting love, and we will be caught up together for that heavenly realm. I know for one, I'll be praying that every day of my life reflects the eagerness to see King Jesus and the eagerness to take as many as I possibly can to heaven with me. It will only be possible if I wake up right now and surrender everything to the Lord. Will you join me as fellow brother and sister in Christ in being holy for King Jesus? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the all of it Discourse. We know that there's fulfillment. We know there is hope. We know there is destruction. And Father, we pray for those listening in that haven't given your life, their lives to you. We pray that they would right now surrender. For Father, we don't know when you're going to send Jesus back, but we want to be ready. We want to be ready to be caught up with the saints, not destroyed with the sinners. And so Father, we pray that people would right now give their life to you. They would commit to you. Father, for those that have wandered away over the years, we pray right now they would recommit to you. They would be refreshed and renewed in the promises of Christ. Father, for the Christians listening and watching today, we pray that they would get rid of their apathy and they would be truly a soul on fire for Christ. Father, we want to surrender to you and be holy for King Jesus. We're watching for that day when you're going to send Jesus. We want to be ready and we're going to get about your business expanding your kingdom as we wait for that long-awaited-for day. Father, we pray in the precious and glorious name of our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.